0: Our spinal cord injury clients stay in our hearts and minds. After all, we help them and their families navigate tremendous life changes. In the research that we're going to look at today, the authors give us a solid big picture review of what we know and what we don't know about spinal cord injury rehab. In the article, we'll see some commonly used assessments, and we'll also find out which treatments are gaining traction and which ones really aren't. And I think most importantly this article serves as a good reminder that there are simply no magic straightforward answers in this area of rehab and instead these patients benefit most from your holistic occupational therapy lens and your commitment to staying on top of up to date practice After we review this article it is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Simon Carson OTL MBA Simon serves as the Chief of Occupational Therapy at the University of Rochester Medical Center, and he's going to help us understand how this research applies to everyday practice. So let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we review new and influential OT journal articles, then invite on an expert guest to help us pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into this week's discussion, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify for continuing education for you. To gain CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, our OT evidence-based practice platform. I'll say a little bit more about that at the end, but bearing in mind that this could count as a CEU course, I wanted to state our two learning objectives so you can be thinking about them throughout the podcast today. Our first learning objective is that you will be able to identify commonly used OT assessments for spinal cord injury rehab. And our second is that you will be able to identify the SEI treatments with the strongest evidence behind them. So let's begin by looking at this journal article, and then we'll bring Simon on to discuss how this research plays out in your practice. The article that we are looking at today is called Type and Timing of Rehabilitation Following Acute and Subacute Spinal Cord Injury A Systematic Review. It comes to us from the Global Spine Journal. It was published in 2017, and it is ranked 67th on our list of the 100 most influential OT journal articles. So this article opens with just a general introduction to spinal cord injury rehab, which I'll refer to as SEI rehab throughout this podcast today. As we know as occupational therapists, spinal cord injury can lead to profound motor, sensory, and autonomic impairments. And in many ways, these patients' outcomes are linked to the severity and the level of their injuries. The authors do note that our understanding of neurorecovery does continue to grow, and two of the mechanisms with which we now understand this recovery post-SCI are the principles of motor control and activity-based neuroplasticity. And these have really come to inform SCI rehab as we know it. SCI rehab is divided into three phases. There's the acute phase and the subacute phase, which this article kind of bundles together. These two phases together span the first 12 to 18 months following an SCI. And this is the time when the natural course of recovery is expected to occur. And rehab during this phase typically focuses on preventing secondary complications, promoting and enhancing neurorecovery, recovery maximizing function, and establishing optimal conditions for long-term maintenance of health and function. The third phase is the chronic phase, and this is when the natural course of neurorecovery has plateaued, and rehab during this phase focuses mostly on compensatory and assistive approaches. So that's our introduction, and then the authors move into why this systematic review was completed. The authors sought to understand the existing evidence behind the specific rehab approaches. Their intention was to inform clinical decision-making and highlight our current knowledge gaps. Four main questions guided their research, and these were, 1. Does the time between injury and starting rehab affect outcomes? 2. What is the comparative effectiveness of different rehab strategies? Three, are there specific patient or injury characteristics that affect outcomes? And four, what is the cost-effectiveness of different SEI rehab strategies? So what were their methods to accomplish this? So in order to do their systematic review of existing research, the author sought studies published prior to April 2015. Studies were included if they were conducted with an adult population who received rehab for acute or subacute SCI at any level or degree of severity. And I'll refer you to the article for their exclusion criteria. As part of the data extraction, uh, the risk of bias of each study was assessed and the body of evidence was evaluated using the grade method. So what were their results? 19 different publications ended up being included in this review. The outcome measures they found included the following assessments that are relevant to OT. First and foremost, there is the ASIA Impairment Scale, and this is like the go-to assessment for understanding the degree of the injury, where A is the highest degree of impairment, the complete injury down to E, where E is normal, and sensation and motor function were both graded as normal when they were tested. Then other assessments that they found in the research were the Berg Balance Scale, the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure, the Functional Independence Measure, Mini Mental State Examination, the SCI Falls Concern Scale, and the Spinal Cord Independence Measure, or the SCIM. So that was some of the outcome measures they were finding. And what were those results for those four questions that I mentioned towards the beginning? There were two questions, question one and four, where they didn't find any studies that addressed these questions. And as a reminder, these two questions were, does the time between injury and starting rehab affect outcomes? And what is the cost-effectiveness of different SCI rehab strategies? So these are obviously really important questions, and in their study, there was a knowledge gap as to the answers of these. But for question number two, what is the comparative effectiveness of different rehab strategies? They did find five different studies that looked at three specific types of interventions, and each of these interventions were compared to conventional rehab. So the first intervention was body weight-supported treadmill training, and they found some low-grade evidence that there were some specific range of motion improvements, but there were not functional differences in the group that received the body weight-supported treadmill training in things like the FIM or in gait velocity, so not the strongest evidence to support that. The second intervention was functional electrical stimulation plus OT, And there was low-grade evidence found that there were some improvements over the conventional rehab group, specifically in the FIM and the spinal cord independence measure. So this was probably the most promising intervention because there were those functional improvements that were noted. And then the third intervention that they looked at was additional time spent during rehab on unsupported sitting, and no significant difference was found across four outcome measures when more time in rehab was spent on unsupported seating as compared to just conventional rehab. So we'll circle back to this question just a little bit in the discussion, but I also want to look at the results for question three, which were, are there patient injury characteristics that affect outcomes? 10 of the studies evaluated which patient characteristics were predictive of outcomes. And of course, as I say this, that does not mean a patient's story is set in stone. It just means that there is this correlation between these factors that we mentioned and their outcomes. So for patient injury factors that were correlated with worse outcomes, the studies identified Medicaid recipients, workers' compensation recipients, increased blood alcohol level at admission, a low functional independence score at admission, and complete injuries. And for patient injury factors that were correlated with better outcomes, they were an increased level of education. Really interestingly, one of them was having a higher body mass index. And third was stronger somatosensory evoked potential readings. So what were the authors' conclusion and discussion from this research? The authors discuss that past research has shown that rehab does improve both function and outcomes following an SCI. However, determining the contribution of individual interventions has been difficult. Factors that contribute to the difficulty of this research include the lack of standardization of interventions, doses, and outcome measures, the heterogeneity of the patient population, differentiating the role of spontaneous recovery. The ethical implications of withholding rehab from the control group, and therefore conventional rehab is always that de facto control group. And then lastly, that multiple interventions are just often delivered simultaneously via an interdisciplinary team. So due to all these research barriers, rehab for SEI has been likened to a black box or to Russian nesting dolls. And in this systematic review, outside of the low grade support for the body weight supported treadmill training, and then I would say slightly more support for that functional electrical stimulation because they found those functional improvements, aside from those two, there simply was no other compelling evidence for specific rehab interventions. But what the authors really want us to understand from this is that this does not mean that rehab in itself is ineffective. In fact, in the brightest light, we could say that the new therapeutics simply have failed to outperform conventional rehab. There isn't that one clear thing that seems to tip the scale. It's the holistic interdisciplinary approach to rehab that ultimately improves the quality of life for these patients. And then the last thing that this study reminds us of is that there are those social determinants of health and individual factors that do impact the outcomes for the SCI population. This is something that we see as being true with all of our patients. And I would say just as a personal note is something that really fits into our worldview as OTs where we know there's so many factors that go into someone's health status and their rehab journey. Okay, there is so much to keep talking about with this article, and I am so thankful to have Simon Carson here to join us today to talk about what SCI rehab looks like and what he took away from this paper. As a little background, Simon received his Master's in Occupational Therapy from Ithaca College and his MBA and Master's in Medical Management from the University of Rochester School of Business. His areas of interest include SCI and cognitive rehabilitation, as well as operations management, quality assurance, and leadership. Simon currently serves as the Chief of Occupational Therapy at the University of Rochester Medical Center. So without further ado, I will patch Simon into our podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Simon. It's great to have you.
1: Thank you, Sarah. Glad to be here.
0: I'm so thankful to have you here to expand on this article a little bit. I think my goal for talking today is one, to paint more of a picture of what conventional rehab looks like. That was something that was kind of missing in the article. And two... I also wanted to capture just how many exciting things there are to learn in SCI rehab. The article kind of made you feel like, oh, just do conventional therapy, but it's such an exciting field. There's so much to learn. So I'm excited to expand on that in this hour. I wanted to start with just your kind of backstory and ask you about how you found occupational therapy and then how your interest in SCI rehab began.
1: Sure. Sure. That sounds good. Yeah, so my name is Simon Carson. I'm the Chief of Occupational Therapy at the University of Rochester Medical Center in Rochester, New York. I oversee a team of about 30 OTs in a Level 1 Trauma Center. We're also an academic medical center. I've been an OT for a little over 20 years, and I'm one of the few who I would say found OT at a, a relatively young age. I entered college as a freshman with a major in, in occupational therapy. And I attribute that to my sister, who's an OT and who blazed that path before I did. And she allowed me to understand the field. And the field of occupational therapy at that time felt like a good mix between working with people, using science, and then as well, innovation. So occupational seemed like a great fit, turned out to be a really good fit. And I can certainly say I'm enjoying my my OT career here 20 years later.
0: So you found OT early, and then in that, how did you find SCI rehab? Was that kind of what you saw your sister doing, or did you discover that as you got into OT?
1: So I stumbled upon that, I would say, in my first year working at the uh, trauma center that I work at now. I remember working with my first spinal cord patient, and the approach to evaluating and treating that patient, it felt quite different than a traditional rehab patient, and the skill set needed to, you know, I think fully understand the population and then help that person regain independence, it felt like a completely different skill set. And at that point, I realized that spinal cord injury rehab was really more of an advanced specialty area. And so at that point, I set out to learn as much as I could about not just evaluation, but as many treatment options as possible to help somebody with a spinal cord injury regain independence and function. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I've been reflecting on SCI rehab this week and thinking, like, when we start OT school, I think SCI is kind of what a lot of us see ourselves doing, like these really complex rehab situations. But then in reality, lots of us in our practice don't see SCI that often. It's for you guys in inpatient rehab. And I think then as we go on as OTs, we start to get intimidated by the practice area.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think, yeah, I've been fortunate that in my setting, this is the center that handles most of the traumatic spinal cord cases. So we are the ones seeing these patients come through of all ages and backgrounds. And I think if you don't work in this sort of setting, you may not see a spinal cord patient. A lot of our candidates that we uh, interview and look to hire, many of them don't have any experience with spinal cord. And if they do, it tends to be more of a chronic condition at that point.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about your setting and the patients you see. And then also I'm curious after hearing you say that the therapists that work there, if they come in without specialty training, what does it look like for them to get immersed in that setting?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we are a level one trauma center, academic medical center. Our hospital has just shy of about a thousand beds. Our OT department has approximately 30 therapists cover the entire spectrum of care from ED through acute care and the ICUs. We have a pediatric tower as well. We also have an inpatient rehab facility. Our inpatient rehab is CARF accredited for spinal cord injury. And we always usually have a few patients with spinal cord injury on our case note at any given time. So our therapists who tend to specialize more in spinal cord injury it is more of an advanced practice area and it does require some advanced education either through, you know, external CEUs, as well as self-study, but just a lot of repetition of working with patients. As we all know, patients with spinal cord injury, you know, they may have the same level of injury, severity of injury, but they're different people. And so therefore they're gonna have different presentations.
0: So in your facility, hypothetically you would see them in like the acute state, maybe, inpatient rehab, and then are they coming back? To your center for ongoing outpatient?
1: Okay. Yeah, that's right. So most of our patients, they do come here primarily as their first point of care. So we will see some of these trauma patients still be flown in or, or driven in by ambulance. So they will first land in the ED. Some then will have surgery and progress to the ICU and then be seen on the acute care side. Following their acute care stay, once they're medically stable, they'll most likely transition to our inpatient rehab facility. There are a few patients who will transition to other inpatient rehab facilities around the region or or around the country. Typical length of stay for our patients is is between three and four weeks. You know, it really depends on their level of injury, how impaired their function is. And then, of course, their dispo and discharge planning. But yes, so once they're in the system, we tend to keep them in our system if they are local. And a lot of these patients, they will eventually follow up in our outpatient side as well. Even if they go to you know home with home care or sniff or some sniff rehab for a short time, we do try to have them follow up with our physical medicine rehab docs annually is the best practice at least to stay on top of their spinal cord injury.
0: Mm-hmm. And then for the therapists that you have coming in who are new to this practice area, I'm really curious, Do you see it taking like a couple years to feel like that advanced clinician? What's that trajectory for a therapist who's like on ramping in this area?
1: An entry-level therapist or a therapist with some acute rehab experience can gain an entry level of competence with a spinal cord patient fairly soon, as long as they're working with patients frequently. But because the diagnosis, it, it's so complex, and I think there's so mm-hmm. many things to know about that to really gain that level of mastery, it, it does take years, at least a couple of years. And, you know, I'm talking for things such as, you know, to really understand the bowel and the bladder function, to really understand the role of, you know, PT, the medical complications, the community resources, and, and the other resources in town to help support somebody with a new spinal cord injury. Typically, when we're seeing a new patient and in the inpatient rehab setting, it's the tip of the iceberg. We are just, you know, starting to introduce all the different areas that a patient needs to really learn and understand. And frankly, in three or four weeks of a rehab state, that's not enough time to comprehensively help that patient really understand and make all the progress they need. So we, we sort of get them going on a pretty good trajectory and then try to hand them off. And I think it takes a skilled therapist to really, you know, evaluate the person, understand where they're at, you know, mentally and emotionally with the new diagnosis. And for the folks who can absorb all of that content to really sort of help them rehab as well as possible while feeding them all of the information on the diagnosis and the prognosis and the resources and the equipment and all the potential risks down the road, risks such as you know, skin integrity, shoulder health nutrition, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I love thinking about this area because it's one of those areas, like if we can all gain more knowledge in SCI rehab, we're going to be better therapists across the board because you have to learn so much about the human body, so much about the rehab process. I know my experience of just working in acute care at a trauma hospital, I just felt so much more comfortable moving forward in my OT career, having worked with more complex patients, and I wasn't even doing spinal cord injury at the time. So I can imagine like once you reach that level of mastery, you are would be so confident moving forward in all kinds of different rehab areas. Yeah, almost feels like a pinnacle of rehab. Because it's so involved.
1: I think OT has a really unique role when it comes to spinal cord injury rehab because we do we do integrate the physical mobility and the strengthening. We do sort of intersect with nursing, with bowel and bladder care. We do intersect with neuropsych and social work on some of the emotional pieces. We sort of take parts of everything and we, you know, we see the, the patient as a whole person. And we need to really understand all the different factors that go into helping a patient regain function and become as independent as possible. Mm
0: -hmm. Yep. So turning to this article, this type and timing of SCI rehab, I'm really curious what your impressions were of this article. I think there were a lot of things that surprised me, but was it surprising to you? What were some of your takeaways?
1: Yeah. So my first thought on the article was they're trying to answer some really important questions. I think there's a lot going on out there right now that is looking to try to validate our approaches to care, whether it's spinal cord injury treatment or treatment for upper extremity with stroke, for example. So I think the questions that they are trying to answer are really important. So time from injury to rehab, for example, that's a big question. That's actually a metric that we track. You know, I think that's an important component to look at because I think the general understanding is the longer it takes somebody to get to rehab, the worst outcome or maybe the longer Mm -hmm. it will take for them to reach their optimal outcome. Of course, the effectiveness, you know, and with the different techniques and strategies, what is, you know, what technique has the most impact on the highest number of patients? Because not only I think are we talking about individual treatment, but I think we're also talking more about population health and trying to find the intervention that is most effective for the most patients as possible. And value is improvement over cost, right? So we want to do this at the lowest cost possible. Mm-hmm. So I think the article really set out to try to answer some questions. And for me, what we came up with at the end was, well, there are some factors that impact rehab and outcomes. It doesn't point to a specific set of treatments or strategies that is most effective. So there's no magic. There's really no you know magic treatment. There's no magic cure, which reinforces to me that it really requires a competent team of therapists and providers to help provide that rehab to the newly injured patient with a spinal cord injury.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was definitely one of I think my surprises was that there were no individual interventions that stood out. But I guess as I think about it, it's such a complex web the healing process is. I can see how you can't just like pull one string and see the impact. On the flip side, that also, to me, that downplayed, like, there are exciting things happening in SEI rehab. There's tons to be learning. Like, the takeaway of the article shouldn't be like, oh, let's just go on with what we're doing. I don't need to learn anything new.
1: Absolutely. So, I think you can only try to think outside the box if you actually understand what's in the box first. So, I think, you know, there definitely are treatment strategies and treatments and, you know, interventions that a therapist you know, needs to understand and needs to, to know to go in and effectively treat a patient with a spinal cord injury. Principles of neural rehab, motor recovery, I think, you know, just a really good understanding of the diagnosis and what that means and, and the prognosis and the expected functional outcomes. But, you know, there are tools that we can use. You know, robotic therapy, for example, is a big tool out mm-hmm. there these days that is being used. And I think with the robotic therapy, the question is dosage, right? How many repetitions? For how long? At what intensity? You know, what is the magic number? and i think there's a lot of research being done with robotic therapy in areas of you know stroke rehab and i think it, it can also extend to spinal cord especially for patients with incomplete injuries so you know i think again going out and trying to maximize your level of comfort and skill with spinal cord injury rehab is definitely the starting point for entry level therapists is to find a good course find a mentor start working with mm-hmm. these patients and understand what the interventions are being used out there now before you start looking at other, other potential interventions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I really want to spend a little time just getting a sense of that conventional rehab that talks about and really just understand what you're thinking about when you do see an SCI patient and starting big picture with What kind of frameworks, theories are guiding your mind as you're walking into a session? The article specifically mentioned activity-dependent neuroplasticity and trying to activate that, and then the principles of motor control. And that made me curious, are those things you're thinking about, are there other just like general principles, whether official or just like your own thinking as you're Mm -hmm. heading into a session?
1: Sure. Those are great questions. So I think the answer is it depends on the injury and the ASIA scale. I will think differently about my intervention depending on the diagnosis. So you mentioned guiding frameworks, guiding theories. For patients who have complete injuries, which would mean no motor or sensory below the level of injury, for patients in that classification, my approach is largely going to be a biomechanical approach where we are working on strengthening the muscles that are intact as well as a rehab approach so we're going to be teaching a lot of compensatory strategies for self-care for movement pretty much any activity of daily function right for patients who are incomplete my approach is a little bit different and this is where the motor recovery and neuroplasticity approaches come into play more so in addition to the biomechanical and the rehab approaches that we will use for the complete injuries for the incomplete patients, we will also do some neuro in the areas that the patient has lost some innervation to their muscles and resulting in decreased motor control. So it's a combination of, of those approaches. And when it comes to the reteaching of, you know, motor skills, Mass practice and repetition, really for complete or incomplete, it's so important because for many of these patients, we're going to be retraining skills and retraining functions that a patient has really baked in their way of doing it for years. And now we are mm-hmm. not undoing it, but we're teaching them a, set, a totally different way to perform that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting for me to hear because that's definitely feels like the theme of every podcast that we do no matter what the practice setting we're going in and we're thinking okay we know we need mass practice to activate that neuroplasticity how are we going to get that i mean that's going to look different with depending on who your patient is okay so that those are a big picture what you're thinking about i want to get like specific nitty gritty you're walking into an eval I know there's tons of variation, but paint me a picture of what an eval might look like with an SCI patient in your facility.
1: Sure. So when we get a new patient with a spinal cord injury, of course, we're going to be doing a thorough chart review. We need to learn as much about this patient as possible before going into that room. So typically, this involves, of course, looking at the you know admission notes, the physician history, physical talking to our acute care counterparts, PT and OT, who are working with these patients on the floors to try to understand what's already been done, delivered, what's been educated on so far. But for me, the biggest, the most important factor is what is their ASIA level and severity? Are we talking a C5 complete patient? Are we talking a T4 ASIA B or C? Really having an understanding of that ASIA scale is going to help me from the start understand what muscles this patient likely has access to and has some control of, and likely where we're going to see patterns of weakness. So as we're doing the chart review, it is Asia level and severity, which would then classify them further as being paraplegic or tetraplegic. Specifically at what level, what muscles are intact, where is sensation absent, and what level... Of completeness are they? Once we know that, I can start to form a picture in my head about expected functional outcomes. So expected functional outcomes, there is a published document put out by the PVA, the Paralyzed Veterans Association. These are published outcomes for complete injuries. So this document will tell you, for example, that a, a C6 expected functional outcome in terms of mobility and self-care after one year of time. And it will also let you know what equipment that patient will likely need, whether it be for mobility or self-care, bowel and bladder management, etc. I'm also considering medical complications that the patient may have already experienced or is at risk for. And these would be things like autonomic dysreflexia, orthostatic hypotension, their skin integrity, are they at risk for skin breakdown? Absolutely. Anytime a patient has a spinal cord injury, they become, you know, high risk for skin breakdown and pressure sores. We want to understand their skin integrity going in. And then that's going to be one of the first things that we're starting to educate on from the get-go mm. because we want that patient to have intact skin forever. Wounds lead to all sorts of bad stuff. So we want to try to prevent wounds at all costs. Mm-hmm. I'll also, of course, want to understand any other restrictions or braces or any other injuries that the patient may have sustained. A lot of these patients, they are traumatic spinal cord injuries. So they may have sustained rib fractures, clavicle fractures. They may be in neck collars or other thoracic braces that are restricting movement, which would, of course, then impact their ability to participate in therapy. The other thing I'm also thinking about is time since injury. So typically in our inpatient rehab unit, We are getting patients who are very newly diagnosed. They may have only been told days ago that they have a spinal cord injury and and they're still processing what that means. However, if you work in an outpatient practice, you may be seeing a patient with a spinal cord injury that they have had for years and they're going to be coming in and really driving the session with very specific goals to work on. And so depending on the setting you're working in, your focus may be pinpoint or it might be very, very wide and broad. So on the inpatient rehab side, we are taking a very broad approach to rehab because we're trying to cover many areas for the patient mm-hmm. and help them make as much progress in the shortest amount of time as possible. So then that leads me into patient goals. Of course, we want to take patient goals into consideration when developing a treatment plan. And I think that is very possible on the outpatient side Sometimes on the inpatient side, a patient is not as able to articulate a goal because they don't fully understand the spinal cord injury diagnosis and what that means. Mm -hmm. So we are helping the patient to you know formulate goals. We are helping to educate them on what it means to have a spinal cord injury and what they could reasonably expect, at least by the time of discharge and with us. No patient goal is necessarily unrealistic. We of course, we want the patient to you know, set high goals for themselves and be as engaged as possible uh, in the therapy process. And so we don't want to squash any goals. And we always hear the stories about a patient who had talked to a physician and the physician said, you'll never walk again. And that that really sort of squashes hope. So, again, as an experienced therapist. I think you want to tiptoe into the patient goals and talk about patient goals that are realistic for the time frame that you will be working with them.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm just thinking about how thankful I am to have OTs working in this area because I always see OTs as people who are high on the analytical side and also high on the empathy side. And I think about this eval and all this information that you have running through your brain while also balancing that this is probably a person with a new traumatic injury whose life has changed. And you're also trying to be that high-empathy guide through that time. And that's a ton of for us to balance, but I also think OTs are well-positioned to do that. I think that's often the skill set that we bring. So that gives me a good sense about the general eval. I did want to ask, are there specific assessments that you tend to use like standardized assessments that you use as a go-to during your eval?
1: I think depending on the setting you work in, your assessments will change a little bit. And the inpatient rehab side function is our gold standard. We have to report out using the quality indicators, which is roughly the FIM scale, but it's, it's been changed in the last few years. So we are reporting back on function. Function is for me, the primary outcome measure and The areas of of self-care and ADLs and IADLs, those are the things that we're assessing initially and we'll also assess at the time of discharge to show progress. But there are certainly other standardized assessments that we will use, especially in the area of upper extremity and hand function. A patient who comes in who is classified as a tetra who has some limited upper extremity function, of course, we want to capture exactly what their function is coming in. So understanding their range of motion, their manual muscle testing, trying to be consistent with the Asia scale and so that we're speaking the same language with the providers. We'll also look at dexterity assessments such as the nine-hole peg test. We'll look at grip strength if that's appropriate for the patient. So, you know, we're just using some of the pretty basic, you know, mm-hmm. assessments that have been yeah. around for a long time.
0: Yeah, that kind of demystifies that a little bit for me to be like, yeah, you're still using our standard set of assessments focusing on function just like you would in other settings. So that helps me paint that full picture of the eval, the assessment. Then I'd love to hear you describe what some typical treatment sessions can look like. Going back to that was the big gap for me reading the article where they just talked about conventional rehab a lot, but I didn't really get a sense of what that looks like. Uh, What does that look like in your facility?
1: Yeah. So I think treatment is, that is the big question mark. It's how, you know, we know where a patient starts out. We know based on that evaluation that, you know, they are laying in bed. Typically they are not able to do most of their ADLs. Right. But we also know that their expected functional outcome says that within a year, they should be able to do, you know, X, Y, and Z tasks Mm -hmm. at some level of independence. How do we get them there? And that, that is the question mark. And that is where, Most of the skill set as a therapist, you know, that's where we need to really learn, and so this is where those advanced CEUs and having a mentor pairing up with another therapist, you know, could be a PT in your facility or an OT who's got the experience to help teach you these interventions because these are the intervention strategies that are not not like some of the other rehab approaches. So, treatment for a spinal cord patient in our setting it can look like a million things, but let me, let me walk you through sort of just the average, right? Sort of Mm -hmm. what, what you'd expect to see. So function, right? So we're going to be focusing typically on two things, function, ADLs in the room, and then clinic time working on things like strength, balance, mobility, dexterity, as well as education on a variety of topics. So let's back up for a minute and talk about the ADL in the room. So One of the things I see often with new therapists who don't have as much experience with spinal cord injury rehab is they want to help that patient progress as as quickly as possible to the highest level. And when I say level, I mean context for that activity or position. Mm -hmm. So I'll see newer therapists working on getting that patient up to the edge of the bed to work on things like lower body ADLs or even upper body ADLs when in fact it's likely the best context to have that patient perform those skills in bed because Mm -hmm. then they can be supported and safe and actually manage their legs uh, with a lot more ease than if they were sitting up on the edge of the bed and they had to deal with balance at the same time. So a lot of our ADLs are going to be taught in the bed level. So we're doing upper body ADLs, lower body ADLs in a It can be supine, but it's usually with the head of the bed elevated. And we're going to be teaching specific strategies on how to manage your body. So how you can roll in bed, how you manage your legs, how you actually can put a pair of pants on by managing your legs. And if you think about this, let's just say, for example, that you're a C6 spinal cord patient. You have strong biceps, and let's say you have some wrist extensors in there, but you're going to watch your patient try to manage their legs with a typical reach and grasp pattern, and that's not going to work. So as a therapist, we need to start to learn different ways to approach lower body dressing, such as using a wrist extensor as a hook to Mm. hook under a leg, to pull a leg up, to then manage a leg, and then figure out how to use the other hand to start putting on a pair of pants. So there are you know, specific ways that this works well for patients and, and the patient just doesn't get it overnight. This takes a lot of practice and it takes a lot of communication and co-treatment with your physical therapist counterpart because in PT, they're going to be working a lot on mobility, rolling, supine to sit, balance, and all of those skills are prerequisite skills for being as independent with ADLs as possible. So we spend a lot of time working on ADLs and We've even gone so far as to videotape our patients before, middle, and end so that they can watch their progress. And that becomes a really helpful tool because you can potentially take videos, and there's videos on online as well that you can tap into that can show a progression of a patient over the course of weeks going from almost dependent with ADLs to nearly independent by learning a few techniques, getting a little bit stronger, and learning how to how to manage their own mobility in bed. So, that's really that's really awesome. That's really rewarding and fulfilling for the patients, especially, you know, you can imagine being a newly injured person laying in bed, unable to complete many of, you know, your basic self-care needs, and after a few weeks, you know, re- really regaining that uh, level of independence. So, that's the approach on the ADL side. We get pretty heavily involved working with nursing on bowel and bladder. So, Bladder management is a really, really important topic that an experienced and competent OT should be involved with and is typically an area that a newer therapist will not be as involved with. Not being able to manage your bladder can turn into a medical emergency Mm -hmm. and result in a readmission or a trip to the ED. And on the other side, bowel management is really, really important because not having a, a solid bowel plan in place can result in a patient being isolated and not wanting to leave the house. So a patient needs to be very confident in their bowel program and know how to manage their bladder so that they can then reintegrate back in the community. So OT has a really, really important role helping bridge that gap between nursing and function. You know, nursing helps with the actual technique. OT helps take that technique, integrate it with, you know, real life context to help them be as functional and independent as possible. In the clinic, our treatment largely looks, so we, we do a lot of strengthening of the intact muscle groups without overdoing it and over, we don't want to cause any overuse injuries. So we got to be very careful not to hurt shoulders. These patients, um, assuming they have the use of their arms and shoulders, are going to be relying on their shoulders for the rest of their life, likely to help with transfers and mobility. So we're working on things like tenodesis and GRASP, again, depending on what level of injury they have. They may be learning a totally different grasp pattern and may benefit from splinting, splinting for function, like a tino training splint or splinting for protection to ensure that the hand maintains a good position. We are also working on mobility skills, such as transfers, transfer to a commode, transfer to a tub bench. So we again, often work with the PTs on transfer technique and making sure that they are using good technique that's safe that they're not overpowering, that they're actually learning good. So when I say technique, there are specific techniques to learn with transfers that incorporate relationships between the the head and the hip so that patients learn how to move their body in ways that are really most efficient. Getting back to the upper extremity, we also will involve some e-stim at times. We will use e-stim if somebody has a, a weak muscle group and we think that by strengthening it, during the time they'll be with us will help improve function. We will introduce NMES or e to help improve strength or try to improve recruitment to that muscle group. So that would specifically be in the areas of wrist extension or some of the intrinsics trying to work on GRASP. Mm-hmm. And then last but not least, a lot of the OT sessions, we are providing so much education and I can't stress this enough. Education has to happen continuously by as many providers as possible Because what happens is, let's say, you know, there's 20 areas of education that have to be provided and a patient will be overwhelmed and overloaded most of the time that we're providing that education. So it's really important to go back to it and repeat it and make sure your patient is understanding it and try to give them the education uh, the way they will absorb it the best, be it video or audio, written materials, demonstration. And there are Lots and lots of really good resources out there that have good, reliable information. There's also lots of sites that have not great information. So my suggestion would be go to the reputable sites. We have links to those and get the information from the primary sources first.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's so much to take in thinking about treatment. I loved hearing these common things that we think about in all OT treatment, the just right challenge and how that relates to safety for this group. I wish I had committed to memory the rehospitalization rate for SEI patients because it's high. And I heard that as a common theme where you're trying to think about that safety component and trying to keep them from going back to the hospital. And that has to be way more top of mind with an SEI patient than with a lot of our caseload. And that pacing and the education and providing hope. I'm really anchored to what you said about the video where they have so much going on every single day, emotionally to process, just analytically to learn, and how easy it would be to not appreciate the progress that they're making. So I love hearing that as like a really simple treatment technique. And I think that just reminds us of a lot of different practice areas, I think, in a lot of OTR patients can undervalue what progress that they're making. And that's part of our role as therapists to show that to them and provide that encouragement. I wanted to touch a little bit more just on the FES part of it, just because that was the one like most promising adjunct treatment that the article talked about. Do you have experience with that? I'm curious because FES keeps coming up in our podcast as something that has those positive outcomes associated with it. Is that something that we should all yeah. be more confident in and learning more about?
1: Yeah, I, you know, as an OT, I think we need to understand it is one of the tools in the tool belt and when to be able to, you know, pull that out and use it with a patient who can benefit from that. It seems like most of the articles that talk about FES talk about it from a lower extremity standpoint and, you know, use in, with physical therapy and, you know, use of FES as a continued modality for just general health, right? So we're going to be putting a patient on an FES bike to maintain range of motion, to, you know, for bone density, for cardiovascular health, you know, to promote circulation, that there, there's lots of benefits to that sort of approach. On the OT side, you know, it, in, in the setting where I work primarily, we do use e as a modality, but I would classify it more along the lines of NMES, so the neuromuscular e in that we are attempting to stimulate muscles and improve recruitment to the muscles that have lost some innervation or that have some partial innervation. And we're doing that in an attempt to improve motor control, but we're also doing it as a way to help with you know with function. So if we're doing tenodesis training, for example, we're helping that patient try to understand that with wrist extension, we get some finger flexion just by the way that our hands and, you know are built, we may use NMES as an adjunct to that. And of course, we always want to do it in the context of, of function. So for us, we have a limited time with these patients, and it's, we always have these conflicting priorities because patients can benefit from so much of what we can do, and we never have enough time to do everything. So we tend to find ourselves working so much on function, these functional skills to go home, and then they'll continue to get OT down the road, you know, in follow-up in outpatient clinics. And I would say that the use of the e and NMES is likely more often happening down the road in outpatient as therapy once they have their foundational skills set up. But again, we can't ignore that. We can't not address those needs. So... We will sometimes introduce that to the patient and see if it's a good treatment technique. If it is, we will maintain that. We'll do that, again, as much as possible. So hopefully that answered your question. Yeah.
0: yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think my final just like really practical question is actually about documentation. I'm hearing this in all the things that are going on in your mind, all the considerations. And I'm like, this sounds so overwhelming to document all of this. And you can spend hours and hours on documentation. I know from talking to you previously that you're a big fan of efficient documentation. And I'm really curious how you tackle that.
1: Yep. So the less time we can spend documenting, the more time we can spend with patients. One of the things that we try with all of our therapists here is to try to document as efficiently as possible, being as concise as possible, but not sacrificing the content that's actually put into your note. So with that said, documentation I think takes practice to actually get good at documenting well and having key phrases and buzz phrases that you can use. And if your EMR or electronic medical record supports that, using things like smart phrases and dropdowns to document, and you may want to actually build out a spinal cord evaluation and a spinal cord treatment note specifically for the things that you're finding yourself doing frequently. With that said, there are definitely key points documentation that we cover in our notes regarding ADLs and more of the function. You know, it's really important specifically to mention what task you're working on, the context, and the position that the patient is in. So, for example, lower body ADLs in supine, head of bed elevated, any specific techniques that are being used. So, if they're using a let's say a figure four position for their legs. And any specific upper extremity approach to managing legs, you're going to want to mention that as well. Time, I think, is a really important metric. Some patients can be independent, but it may take them 60 minutes. If we can help a patient become independent in 30 minutes, that's fantastic because now they've just freed up 30 minutes and they've saved that energy they can use to do something else later in the day. And then, of course, total amount of assist being provided for the task. We're often doing teaching to family members or support people who will help with some of these tasks going home. So we wanna know specifically how much assist they need to do that. So that covers pretty much the functional side of the documentation. In the clinic, anything that's got to do with motor control, strengthening, you're gonna be documenting reps, sets, weights, what grip or pinch uh, is being used, how accurate they are, what type or size object is being pinched or grasped, repetitions. Activity tolerance, when does fatigue sort of play in, how many rest breaks are required. And then education is a big one to document on. This is a big topic for JCO. It's a big topic for CARF. CARF actually uh, requires that we document education in something like 17 to 20 different topic areas. So having a checklist of education that you can document that you provided mm-hmm. education on is is really helpful.
0: Yeah, I think all this discussion has really made me excited about SCI rehab. like It's painted a picture for me. I don't even see myself as being a future SCI rehab therapist, but I'm still like, this is an area that I need to be paying attention to because I see you guys on the frontier of rehabs and some of the developments that you're going to make over the past or over the next decades and years, I can see trickling down in Affecting a lot of us because it is this like pinnacle of rehab and something that we should all be following. I know that you gave me this list of some of your favorite resources. I'm going to go ahead and link to those in the show notes so people can go and spend more time with it. There is a lot of just like book knowledge to absorb when you're in this practice area. We're getting close to our time today. I'd love to ask you just a couple rapid fire questions if you're up for that. Yeah, absolutely. How do you usually describe occupational therapy?
1: Yeah, that's always the question, right? Is how, yeah. how do you define OT? <laughs> so for me, you know, OT helps people improve function to get back to the things that are meaningful for them. Yeah, mm. Pretty plain and simple.
0: Yep, awesome. What's something you've read recently that's inspired your OT practice?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think we're always going back to the literature to try to find evidence to support OT. There was a good study and it's not, it's not, really recent, but there was a study that actually looked at staffing, staffing for OT related to readmissions in the hospitals. Mm -hmm. And this study actually looked and found that the more that a hospital spent on occupational therapists, the lower their readmission rates were. And this is for a specific population, but this really, you know, it's really important because it paints the picture of all of the good work that we do. OT gets involved in really complicated cases OT is involved and helps patients navigate their complex lives and the complicated issues they're dealing with to help set them up for success to be independent, to be functioning in the community. So so I was really, really happy to see that article. And that article has also supported us with additional staffing requests from time to time. Hmm.
0: Yeah. I'd love to link to that and I'll definitely read it. And that makes a ton of sense based on what you talked about today, how mindful we are of those things that could impact readmission. And the more people that are thinking about that, the less likely readmission is. That makes a lot of sense to me. And finally, how do you hope a patient feels after their initial visit with an OT?
1: Yeah, another good question. So for me, I think the two words are, are hopeful and empowered. It feels really good to be able to come out of an evaluation with a patient, especially with a new spinal cord injury, and have them start to see the light at the end of the tunnel to say, oh, wow, I didn't know that. That was amazing. I now, I have hope that, you know, this thing that's now in front of me that feels so overwhelming and feels just impossible has now turned possible.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful, and I just... Can hardly wrap my mind around the process of having the SCI experience and how important it is to see those providers who are painting a picture of what the future looks like and the hope there. Yeah, I'm just so thankful we have OTs working in this area. I was wondering is there any, as we wrap up, is there any final thoughts that have trickled to the top of your mind that you'd like to end us on today?
1: You know, I for anyone who is interested in spinal cord injury rehab, I would just really encourage you to to jump in. There is so much good information out there these days, especially online. And Sarah, like you said, you'll link those in the notes below. But I would say jump in. There's nothing more rewarding than gaining competence in an area that you know really is an advanced area, and being able to jump in and and make a difference in in people's lives. And I think that spinal cord injury rehab is definitely one of those areas that, like you said, OT plays a crucial role and you can see immediate impacts with patients, be it an inpatient rehab or outpatient or subacute. So my I guess my word of advice is is just jump in. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Simon, thank you so much for your time today. I'm feeling really, really thankful to your sister for introducing you to this field initially. And yeah, thanks for all that you taught us today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Sarah.
0: Wow, you all, this was such a good occupational therapy conversation about what it looks like to walk alongside someone through such a tremendous life change and the many different areas where OT can have an impact and just how important those areas are and how personal those areas are. I'm so thankful for the OTs working in this area of rehab. This is the kind of topic where there are so many details, um, so many that you can't keep them all in your mind. You're going to need written resources to refer to. Simon provided us with links to some of his favorite resources that we'll share in the OT Potential Club. We'll also have a written breakdown of the article, a place for you to discuss it, and a place for you to ask questions about this podcast. And the OT Potential Club is also where you'll go to take a five-question test about this episode if you would like to earn a certificate of completion for your time today. It is currently only $79 to join us in the club and to have access to this and the many other courses that we have in there. This is our 30th episode, which is a big milestone for us. And we're so excited and thankful to be able to share these discussions with you and to be learning alongside you. Okay. So as always, I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this podcast helps you broaden your knowledge, tweak your practice and stay evidence-based. Take care and we'll talk to you next time.